what we found was that indigenous people are actually 30% more likely than white people to end up with the worst possible reintegration score during their time in custody. That is a big difference. You know, your odds of getting paroled are probably going to be affected as a result. Absolutely. That's Tom Cordoso, crime and justice correspondent for The Globe and Mail. He's our guest today on this episode of the Akamemuk podcast. Danse, Dawao, and welcome to the Akamemuk podcast. I'm your host, Perry Belgard, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. Akamemuk is Plains Cree for you all persevere, or in other words, let's keep going and don't give up. On this podcast, we discuss the leading issues facing First Nations peoples with top experts, with elders, and community leaders. If you listen to this podcast regularly, you've definitely heard this statistic. First Nations people in Canada are 4% of the Canadian population, but make up about one quarter of the prison population. This is just one more concrete example of systemic racism in the legal system. But now, a new groundbreaking investigation by the Globe and Mail crime and justice reporter Tom Cardoso takes a hard look at years worth of government data to reveal the impact of that systemic racism in the prison system and the real damage that it does to First Nations people. So Tom, welcome to the Akamemuk podcast. Thanks for having me. Okay, so Tom, your investigation went pretty deep. You used access to information requests to get seven years of prison data on 50,000 people. What made you do that and what prompted this investigation and what were your main takeaways from that review? You know, the way that that started was actually, uh, as so often is the case with this kind of reporting, I started uh, intending to look at something completely different. So that was actually the composition of juries. This was uh, right after the Gerald Stanley uh, case Mm -hmm. and the Raymond Cormier case, both of which led to some pretty high profile acquittals. And especially in the Stanley trial, the composition of the jury was a big point of conversation. And I was curious to look at how juries broke down, you know, along several demographic lines. And uh, I started emailing a bunch of people, realized pretty quickly that information probably doesn't exist in Canada. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in the process of doing that, I had learned a little bit about the information that the criminal system, criminal justice system does collect, namely, correctional databases and the information that's in there. Uh, And so I shifted my focus from juries to sentencing. And so I started filing these freedom information requests. I filed one to the Correctional Service of Canada, responsible for administering all federal prisons, where most people sentenced to two years or longer will end up. And uh, in doing that, I managed to extract, uh, as you said, you know, seven years of data, 750,000 rows. And when I got that information, I wasn't exactly sure what to do with it because at first glance, you know, so massive, there was a million different things I could be doing with that information. Mm-hmm. Um, and it took me a while to focus, to zero in on these risk assessments. I saw in the data there were columns for, uh, and this is their terminology here, offender security level, reintegration potential. And those I knew were risk assessments, but I didn't know very much about them. And by then I was already pretty interested in risk assessments as a topic. I'd been reporting a little bit on the use of government algorithms, basically. Um, Mm. These automated decision-making processes. There's been a lot of reporting, especially out of the States, about how potentially fraught those tools can be. Uh, In 
a very famous story about sentencing in Florida by ProPublica a couple of years ago, they found that these assessments were actually biased against black people. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, there's a lot of reporting about how facial recognition doesn't work as well on black people again in the States because the training data that they've used is so small for that population. So you end up misidentifying people and that kind of stuff. And so it really got me wondering whether risk assessments in Canada at Corrections Canada, that is, were whether they were also exhibiting some of these discrepancies. And a colleague of mine was the one who actually pointed me in that direction and set me off. Uh, Ultimately, that's what led me to spend almost another year of my life diving deep into this stuff, talking to, in the end, more than 60 people Mm -hmm. to learn everything I possibly could about what the system looked like and how important these risk assessments are. Because they're some of the most important determinations you can make about someone's life in prison are their risk assessment scores. The way I've explained to people is you almost get sentenced twice. You get sentenced once by the judge, and then you get sentenced a second time when you have your risk assessments assigned. So is it uh, those risk assessments are really the key then to whether or not an individual gets out on probation sooner or later? Uh, that's They're a big part of that, for sure. Uh, you know, If you were to ask any parole officer, I think they would tell you that it's a complicated equation that's going on in their minds and by the parole board as well. But there's no question that the scores are super important. If you're in a maximum security prison, you're going to be uh, thought of and treated differently than, in a, than if you're in a minimum security prison. And if you have mm-hmm. a low reintegration score, the worst possible one, you know, your odds of getting paroled are probably going to be affected as a result. Absolutely. So if there's some bias on, in terms of a probationary worker to give, for example, if I was in the system and it gave me a really low reintegration score, what's the process for me to even change that, to have a review of my low reintegration score? Like, is there a process? Is that ever reviewed, ever looked at? Or is once I get that score, that's it. It follows me forever. Like, how, how, else, how is that impacted? Yeah. So uh, with those scores, the way it works is that they do, people do get reassessed uh, at regular intervals. And it depends... That interval depends on a bunch of stuff, like uh, what kind of programs you're completing. Say, you know, you've completed uh, an alcoholism program. You might get reassessed after that. But the first score is, in a lot of ways, the most important one because you're always going to be comparing to that score, right? So if you start at a low, the only next place that you can go is either continue to be a low or become a medium, right? So uh, that first score has a huge impact, huge impact. And in a lot of cases, people's scores don't change for years, uh, which is what we found in our story, that some people's scores take years and years and years to change. So in your study then, Tom, like that's the things you put, there's two key tests for, mm-hmm. for inmates moving into the correction system, the security score and your reintegration potential score. That's right. Just again, for the listeners again, like how are those impacting First Nations uh, in, in the system right now, both yeah. of those scores? Yeah, so uh, on the security score, 13% of Indigenous people, uh, and that includes First Nations, Métis, and Inuit uh, people. I grouped them all because, you know, just statistically it made sense to do it. Um, but I'm happy to talk about First Nations specifically in a little bit more detail. Mm-hmm. But uh, for Indigenous people overall, 13% get the worst possible uh, security level at admission compared to 9% for white people. So four percentage points might not seem like a lot, but it's a big difference. Uh, especially when you compare the uh, percentage of people who end up with the best score. So that would be a minimum security score. For Indigenous people, that's 
17% at admission end up in minimum. White people, nearly double, 31%. So mm. it's very, very different. So for the reintegration score, which again, impacts people towards the end of their sentences and has huge uh, influence in parole decisions, the conditions attached to those parole decisions, we controlled for race, age, the type of sentence. So are they serving a determinate sentence that is a sentence that has a fixed end, five years, 10 years, whatever, or an indeterminate sentence? Uh, you know, are they on a life sentence basically or whatnot? The severity, the severity of their offenses, their criminal history, what we found was that indigenous people are actually 30% more likely than white people to end up with the worst possible reintegration score during their time in custody. That is a big difference. Mm -hmm. And that means, you know, you take a white person and just flip their race, automatically they're 30% more likely to end up with a lower integration score. It's a big difference. Wow. So it's almost like once a First Nations person gets into that system, you're institutionalized, it's very difficult to come out of that system. It's just almost like a big cycle. Absolutely. To, to break out of that. And so you did some study as well on a uh, uh, First Nations man named Nick Nushtai. Now, he was in the system, in the prison system for 12 years. What does his story reveal about the correction system? What did you learn from talking to Nick? Yeah, Nick was, uh, it was very eye-opening. Um, I first met him in a Tim Hortons <laughs> late one night. I think it was probably January or February. And he handed me a bag uh, with, you know, probably three inches worth of documents mm -hmm. uh, documenting his entire time in prison. Uh, so Nick uh, spent 12 years, as you said, uh, in prison for manslaughter. Uh, he was involved in an incident where a 20-year-old man was killed. Um, and Nick's life has, you know, by his own admission, not been easy. He grew up in a complicated, uh, you know, home environment. He was drinking from a very early age. His parents were both uh, victims of intergenerational trauma. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, it's a, unfortunately a common story for a lot of indigenous people in Canada, but uh, you can see how the things that happened early in his life just cascade on and on. And he'll tell you that himself, you know, yeah. that he, so he started drinking at a very young age, you know, before he, I think before he was 12, he had his first drink. By the time he was 24, uh, he had drunk so much at one point that he fell down, the, down a flight of stairs and fell into a coma. Uh, and when you know uh, the killing happened in 2006, he was uh, you know quite drunk, and it was uh, by then he had already you know uh, he already had a lot of experience with the criminal justice system, to put it mildly. I mean, I've seen some of uh, the charges that were associated with his file, and um, they're unfortunately not really surprising. Uh, a lot of it is what we call administration of justice charges, so they're not actually charges that are directly related to a, an offense. Uh, there are charges that are related to, you know, uh, violating terms of probation, uh, not showing up to courts. And those kinds of charges can have a real impact because they further your involvement with the justice system and mm -hmm. they cascade, like you were saying. So Nick went to prison in uh, 2007. Uh, he was uh, waiting for about a year before he got a sentence. And from the moment he arrived, things were difficult for him. He mm -hmm. uh, er, very early on, you know, expressed uh, what I think was a genuine interest in uh, changing, you know, in um, learning how to 
work with his addiction, uh, learning how to, you know, cope with his anger problems that had cropped up throughout his life and just, you know, try to become a better person uh, and avoid having something like that ever happen again. I mean, he told me himself that he's not, to this day, he's sometimes not sure if 12 years was a long enough sentence given what happened and, Mm. you know, everything that occurred. But when he went to prison, he ended up uh, within three and a half months of admission, he ended up being sent to maximum security with a low reintegration score. And that is the worst possible combination of scores that you could get. Uh, and in his case, he actually went to what is widely considered the toughest maximum security unit in all of Ontario, J unit and Millhaven institution. That's a place where, uh, what I've been told, you know, life lifers are often sent there to start out their sentence. And it's a place where you toughen up pretty quickly. You pretty quickly learn how to operate within a prison and it's, it's do or die. Um, and in his case, the way that he survived was by realizing that he had this unique talent for making brew, which is uh, alcohol that you um, make yourself inside the prison. So his was often made in a footlocker. He would take fruits, sugars, you know, potatoes, and then he would uh, basically ferment them, distill it, and you would have this alcohol. And it was really unfortunate in his case because he you know, by his own admission, was an alcoholic, so it was feeding his addiction, but it was also a uh, survival mechanism for him, right? Because mm-hmm. other people wanted that product, that contraband. And uh, even though he says he wanted to stop very early on, that was not really on the table for him because it was a, uh, other people did not want him to do that. That was his way of survival. You mentioned the word Absolutely. intergenerational trauma. And so that's something for a lot of our listeners to explain. Like uh, we've talked about the intergenerational trauma of uh, genocide via the residential school system and the, even the trauma of the Indian Act system. Between those two things, that's really, it's colonization of indigenous peoples. And I've referred to the residential schools as a genocide of our people because when you're taken away as a child, when you're four or five, six years of old, of age, institutionalized, cut off from your family with no love or support, and then you're physically abused, mentally abused, sexually abused, uh, you're not healthy coming out of that system. And so you can't be expected to, to have healthy families. And so the way you describe uh, Nick at a very young age turning to alcohol, like I think is is 10 years old when he started drinking because broken home, single parent home. And so all those things are tra- just transpounded. I just wanted to Talk about that. So our listeners, when you use the word intergenerational trauma, it's, it's almost like as First Nations people, we become so institutionalized. It's all, almost become normalized from the residential school system, which was an institution, now to the jails and then the child welfare system. Like all of it's institutionalized. And uh, we've got to find a better way to, 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 to deal with colonization and oppression, even to fix this. Uh, system where we said we've got to start moving towards restorative justice versus punitive justice. And so back to Nick again, mm-hmm. you've learned some things uh, about his story, 12 years in the system. He found a way to survive uh, the J unit at Millhaven, you know, the maximum. Uh, you mentioned how the paperwork follows you. And so he was in that system for 12 years. And so he was, a, a, his risk assessment wasn't in his best favor. And is there anything else you could share, anything yeah. else that you can share about his story? Yeah. Uh, I mean, reading through his paperwork, 
the more I read, and it took a couple days to read through it all because it was hundreds of pages, the more I started to notice some odd discrepancies in his files. Uh, so one uh, file, you know, he the parole officer writes, you know, given that Mr. Nushtai is an indigenous person, he uh, qualifies for this kind of treatments, these kinds of services and whatnot. And the very next paragraph says, but he is not indigenous, therefore like none of these, you know, services apply. And that's something, those kinds of errors are something I saw mm -hmm. again and again in his files. And I brought it up with him pretty early on because I said, this is, this is really weird. I mean, his very first file, his preliminary assessment, which is the one that gets done when you first are getting admitted to a prison. This is the, the opening interview, basically, where they're trying to figure out, okay, what are your allergies? Uh, what kind of uh, incompatibles might you have? You know, are you involved with a gang so you shouldn't be put with people from another gang in this prison? All that kind of stuff. Uh, during that preliminary assessment, they misspell his name. And in fact, it's not misspelling his name. They use a completely different name at one point. They call him Sutherland instead of Nushtai. And you know those keys are not next to each other on the keyboard. So what's happening there, he told me later, was that it's well known by prisoners that parole officers often copy and paste from one document to another to save time. And wow. it's something I've seen in other inmates' documents too. It's uh, come up a fair bit. I mean, uh, there's instances where Nick is scribbled on the, in the side of the paper saying, you know, this is incorrect or that's not right. You know, this is not my wife's name. Uh, and it's, it's pretty shocking to read these files because these are hugely consequential files. This is a parole officer saying something that's going to be read by the parole board or presented to the parole board. And yet there are all these inconsistencies. And you can see how an error early on might possibly compound later. Right, Nick was lucky mm -hmm. enough that he was never, they never deemed him to have been in a gang or anything like that. But I've heard stories about how, you know, once you have a gang affiliation on your file, it's very hard to remove. Mm. How do you prove that you're not in a gang? It's very hard. Wow. So, so Tom, based on your reporting, you know, would you say now that there, this is hard evidence, there is hard evidence of systemic racism in the correction system? Absolutely. Okay. So how do we fix it then? What are solutions? You know, like we've we've said, and I've said this before, not only within the correction system, but within the policing system, when we look at statistics, like we're 4% of Canada's population, but 25, 30% of the jails are filled by First Nations people, there is something innately wrong within that system. So what do you think are some of the solutions when it comes to even like just talking about risk assessments or corrections, um, you know, or even talking about restorative justice versus punitive justice. When we talk about community-based policing and systemic racism, the arts, like you can take it anywhere you need to go, but what do you see and think some of the solutions could be going forward? Yeah. Well, let's, let's start small. Let's start with the risk assessments. I think, uh, there's been a growing, uh, chorus of psychologists and academics who are starting to say that these assessments have to take into account cultural factors. So what do I mean by cultural factors? I'm talking about things like intergenerational trauma, which we talked about earlier. You have to be able to account for the fact that, you know, you grew up in a very unstable home environment. The fact that you were exposed to alcohol or other substances from a very young age, you have to be able to account for things like fetal alcohol syndrome, mm -hmm. uh, which is very prevalent in some communities. You have to be able to account for all these things. And also you have to be able to account for 
different traditions. So you have to be able to account for the fact that uh, for a particular indigenous community, um, traditional cultural practices might be really important, right? And it's not something that what these uh, risk assessments, risk, these risk assessments, which are mostly designed by white researchers, uh, are not taking that stuff into account, right? So it, it's it's a complicated problem because you can't use the same tool with everyone. Uh, I don't know that. Uh, culturally aware a risk assessment built for indigenous people in BC will be the same as a culturally aware risk assessment built for indigenous people on the East Coast, mm-hmm. right? They're very different cultures. That's it. Uh, so there's, uh, there's that. Uh, there's, you know, making these risk assessments more culturally aware. And in fact, I've spoken with people who told me that they think these risk assessments should be rebuilt from the bottom up with these ideas in mind just a whole reset. So that's risk assessments. But of course, the risk assessments are just one part of the system. There's also a much larger problem of, you know, injustice in the system generally, right? So you've talked about policing in the past, Mm -hmm. policing, hugely important. In fact, one of the academics I spoke to for that story told me that these risk assessment tools right now are not actually predicting whether someone is going to commit a crime. They're not predicting reoffending. What they're doing is they're predicting policing. They're predicting the likelihood that someone will be arrested and sent to jail or prison by the police, right? And as we know, policing is not a uniform system in Canada. It's not something where everyone is treated exactly the same. We've seen a lot of evidence of that this year, mm-hmm. both in the States and in Canada. So, you have to look at fixes to policing. You also have to look at things like changes to how the justice system approaches indigenous people and others, really, generally, right? So uh, you have to look at restorative justice. You have to look at processes that allow for people to avoid going to prison uh, and being diverted from that system for a bunch of reasons. For one, prison is very expensive. It costs more than $100,000 a year to incarcerate a single person. That's very expensive. Wow. Uh, but also, you know, there's a lot of evidence that you can actually get better outcomes. And by outcomes, I mean people reintegrating into society, not reoffending, staying out of jail or prison in the future if you manage those people in the community. That's obviously not the case for everyone. Everyone is different. But there is evidence to suggest that that's the case. And I've spoken with a lot of academics who told me as much. Okay. Then there's also, you know, things like changing the way that we handle people going into the system in the first place, diversion, as they call it. So perhaps if you, uh, you know, are uh, dragged into a courtroom for a drug charge, the better solution is not to send that person to jail or prison, but to uh, actually, uh, but to actually, you know, send them to a treatment program instead, mm-hmm. or do something of that sort, and avoid the criminal record entirely, because as you've noted those records do follow you. Nick's paperwork has followed him his entire life. He's had files on him since he was a teenager. Wow. So there, there's a lot to do, Tom, when we start talking about a restorative justice system versus a punitive justice system. Mm-hmm. And everything from uh, policing, community-based policing, to probationary service workers, to sentencing circles, to tribal courts, tribal uh, police, to uh, dealing with diversion programs, um, and, and so it's almost like, and I've said this before that 
what we have in Canada when it comes to First Nations people, it's a legal system. There is no justice for First Nations people in that legal system. And we see so many examples of racism and discrimination. And the statistics obviously don't lie. And we become so institutionalized, intergenerational trauma, all of these things. I've said it that you have common law and civil law in Canada. You know, in, in Quebec, you have uh, civil law, everywhere else, common law. And uh, if we're really going to start talking about reconciliation and fixing a, and overhauling a justice system, we've said there's got to be space in Canada for First Nations law, natural law, creator's law, in addition to common law, civil law. And everything we just talked about has to be implemented. And if you had the, the decision-making powers to be in front of you, um, whether it be the prime minister or the minister of corrections, uh, what would be your main message to them? Out of all your research, because you 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 focus very keenly on one aspect, which is risk assessment. So start there and fix that. Is there any other message you would share to them based on your experience and your research and what you're you're finding after uh, all the work you've done? What would be your message to them? Yeah, I think uh, one thing that I heard from people a lot, and this came up especially in my conversation with uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould, uh, who's cited in that story. She told me that the time for reports is over. We've done a million reports on the problems in uh, the criminal justice system generally at this point. And everyone, she says, has a pretty good idea of what the solutions are. The problem is that they're not easy solutions, but the answers already exist. And so a lot of people have told me that they think we're kind of past the, the point of studying the issue, mm-hmm. trying to find a set of recommendations. It's just a time for action now. And in a way, I think that that's actually super positive. That's a good thing because it means that we have a very good idea of the laundry list of things that we have to do now. Mm-hmm. That hard work, that's the hardest part in some cases is figuring out what you're supposed to be doing. That part is done. If you talk to someone at the John Howard Society, which is a prison reform society, if you talk to Jody Wilson-Raybould herself, if you speak with senators like uh, Kim Pate or Maurice Sinclair, they'll all tell you that they, they've known the answers for a long time. It's just a question of action now. So I think, you know, given all of that, it's interesting to start talking about this, not in terms of studies, in terms of new recommendations or reports. It's time to start talking about this, as Jody Wilson-Raybould said, in terms of solutions now, and just actually putting pedal to the metal, <laughs> so mm-hmm. we're, you know, uh, hitting the pavement. So this is a question I always ask uh, my all my guests. You know, in terms of all the challenges uh, within the, the the just or the legal system and in correction system and everything that's going on there, uh, what gives you hope? I think Nick's story is actually a very hopeful one. He's overcome enormous odds uh, from the moment he was born, basically, uh, and you know, overcome some pretty trying experiences both in prison and what happened in that unfortunate night in 2006, uh, which he will, I'm sure, atone for for the rest of his life. But you, speaking to Nick, you know, he is a, a very inspirational person because he's worked against all of these odds. You know, he is, as he told me himself, he's not a number. He's not a statistic. Mm-hmm. He's a person. And he's managed to take something that could have easily derailed someone else's life forever and turned it into something positive. He had this, uh, there's this 
uh, line that appears in a lot of his correctional documents and actually end the story with this. And uh, he writes, uh, one door closes, one door opens in a lot of his uh, reports. And it's actually from a, a cane that a, an elder, Vern Harper, mm-hmm. once gave him. And it's, uh, you can see how he's been able to find that door and open it and walk through it. And him and his wife, Catherine, are both really inspirational people. They've overcome so many difficulties. I mean, they weren't able to be physically together until he left prison and they were married while he was inside. You know, it's, a, it's very impressive to see something like that happen because it tells me that people can change. It tells me that change is possible. It's very easy to think that the moment someone has done something like what Nick did, that's who they are for the rest of their lives. But I think he's living evidence that that's not the case. Hmm. You know, that's a, that's a positive way to, to end our dialogue here, Tom. And it's almost like, but something struck me, and I also want to reemphasize the point that there is a high cost to maintaining the status quo and, uh, you know, over $100,000 uh, to maintain a person in, in that system, that jail system. That's a lot of resources a year to keep somebody in mm-hmm. jail. And so we need to start as a society looking at alternatives. And uh, that's that whole um, point about restorative justice versus punitive justice and start looking at uh, uh, a whole range of things because the the status quo just isn't working and there's a high cost to maintain that. And uh, I think with your your message of hope as it relates to Nick and the example of uh, his his, uh, perseverance to work through because he is a human being and uh, he's come through that. So that's a very strong statement. Is there anything else you'd like to add, Tom? Well, just, you know, thank you for having me. <laughs> I'm uh, happy to be able to talk about this. I think it's a it's an issue that no one would really think about, I think, on a day-to-day basis. But once I dove into it, I realized just how influential and, uh, you know, all-encompassing it was. And it's on everyone's minds when they're inside prison. So, you know, I hope that by reporting on some of this, we're able to shine a light on this process that people don't really understand or ever really consider. It's not easy to think about people in prison. Uh, For one, you know, they are far removed physically, geographically. But Mm -hmm. I think knowing how these systems work is really important if we want to talk about positive change. That's awesome. Well, Tom, thank you so much for all the work you do. And thanks for coming on our Akamemuk podcast. Thanks for having me, National Chief. And I want to thank all the people for listening to the Akamemuk podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Give us a rating and tell your friends about us on social media. And as always, we want to give a big shout out to the Red Dog Singers of the Treaty 4 Territory in Southern Saskatchewan for providing our theme music. Until next time, I'm Perry Belgard, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations.